Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, December 14th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a federal program that helps tens of thousands of Mississippians buy healthy foods is facing major cuts if Congress doesn't act. Then it's been three years since rollout of the first COVID-19 vaccines in the United States. Plus, an online listening session this afternoon will give audiences a deeper understanding of how three ghost towns came to be. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A federal program that helps low-income families buy healthy foods is facing cuts that could put Mississippi families on a wait list. The Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC, serves more than a third of the nation's infants. In Mississippi, child participants receive $26 each month, and their mothers receive $47 to purchase healthy foods. Congress has already missed a deadline to submit funding for 2024, but stopgap funding is in place until January 19th. If Congress doesn't act before then, the program faces a $1 billion shortfall due to increased program participation and higher food costs. Georgia Matchell is the interim president and CEO of National WIC Association, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. In all my years here, I can't ever recall a moment when WIC faced such promise and such peril at the same time. The promise is remarkable. Over the past few years, WIC participation has increased significantly, helping more moms have healthy pregnancies and giving young kids a healthier start in life. Participants have received major increases in their fruits and vegetable benefits, helping them afford nutritious foods that help them thrive. Increased flexibilities like remote certification and online benefit redemption have made the program more accessible than ever, and USDA is proposing rules to further enhance the nutrition quality of the food package and help more participants spend benefits online. Lawmakers from both parties are sponsoring bills to make these flexibilities permanent. And yet, all of this progress is at significant risk. For nearly 50 years, WIC has had the funding it needed to assist anyone who was eligible to participate. It didn't matter which party controlled the White House or Congress. If there was a need, that need was met. Today, however, that compact is on really shaky ground. Rising participation and higher food costs means WIC needs more funding to do its job. The Biden administration has recognized the need and asked Congress for additional funding. That request, however, came months ago, and Congress has not acted. 
Even worse, some in Congress are proposing to slash WIC funding by hundreds of millions of dollars. There is no health or economic justification for such deep cuts, but they're unfortunately on the table. The consequences would be devastating. New research shows that even if Congress level funds WIC, states may need to cut participation by 2 million people by next September. That means turning away people who need help instead of welcoming them. This would go against everything my colleagues in state and local WIC offices believe in and fight for, but their hands would be tied. There is no replacement for federal dollars. Our message to Congress is simple, fully fund WIC, meet the moment. Millions of women, children, and babies are counting on you and we can't let them down. If WIC isn't fully funded, states will likely have to put wait lists in place for new program applicants and renewals. As of September, there were nearly 61,000 active WIC participants in Mississippi, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Sharon Parrott is president of the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. Children in states that have fewer other supports will be hurt even more if they lose access to WIC. Um, Children in every state will be harmed in really impactful ways if they lose access to WIC. Um, but it is absolutely the case that in some states there are more other additional supports than in, than in other states. And so in a state like Mississippi, loss of WIC would be particularly detrimental. Dr. Sandy Chung, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, agrees with that sentiment. The disproportionate impact that this would have on particular states that have higher um, populations of low-income families would really uh, make a difficult situation even worse. And other support programs for children like school meals, they don't reach this age group. And so it's really important that Congress provide that additional funding for WIC because for many families, it's the only way that they're able to feed their babies and toddlers. Medical leaders in Mississippi have been raising alarms for years that the state has significant gaps in health care for young children and people who can get pregnant. Without access to WIC, the medical needs for early childhood development could be hard to find for many families. That's according to Paul Thorne, director of the WIC program in Washington state. This is really critical right now when we're facing a shortage of uh, prenatal care in some areas in our country. In my state, in um, one of our counties, we've heard that it's almost impossible to get prenatal care right now. But WIC is actually the doorway to prenatal care for many families. They come to WIC first, and then we make referrals for them to get into an OBGYN or another practitioner who can provide them with the kind of care they need before they give birth. And so if WIC is not there, these families may very well not have that care, and they may deliver without having received any prenatal care at all. Members of the House are expected to leave Washington, D.C. today to return home for the holidays, and the Senate will dismiss tomorrow. They won't return until early January. Coming up, it's been three years since rollout of the first COVID-19 vaccines in the United States. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are your holiday traditions? Driving to see relatives? Baking treats? Cuddling up on the couch near the fireplace? MPB Think Radio can be a part of each of these holiday events. Listen on your car radio or your smart speaker, along with on-demand favorites like Deep South Dining and AutoCorrect inside the MPB Public Media app. Start a new tradition today, listening to MPB Think Radio while you celebrate the holidays.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Three years ago today, the first coronavirus mRNA vaccines became available in the United States. These immunizations were the first of their kind and allowed for a quick development and rollout process not seen before. Vaccines would arrive in Mississippi on December 16, 2020, when a coalition of medical leaders met in Madison to get their first dose. Our Kobe Vance speaks with State Health Officer Dr. Dan Edney, who was one of the first doctors to get a COVID vaccine in Mississippi. He says it helped spark hope amongst the medical field when so many were putting their lives at risk caring for patients. It's an answer to prayer, literally, you know, for so many of us, specifically for me. In 2020, I was a primary care internist in Vicksburg, and I was on the front line taking care of COVID patients. I had the first patient in the hospital in Warren County with COVID, and I I can't tell you how many COVID patients uh, treated through the pandemic years, Uh, but in 2020, we had no vaccine, and as we were watching what was happening in the Northeast, there was a 20% mortality among healthcare workers that were taking care of COVID patients. Many of us had to make the decision, are we going to stand firm and take care of our communities or are we going to retire or step out or what are we going to do along with the vast majority of physicians and providers around the state I made the decision this is what I had signed up for and it's my that I would do my duty I wasn't naive about what that meant so I got my affairs in order and kept going to work protecting myself as best I could protecting my family as best I could and taking the best care of my patients as I could uh, with very limited treatment options and no vaccine and praying every day for God to give us a vaccine. And he did. Not only effective, it was far more effective than we had ever hoped for, and it was safe. On the 14th will be the two-year anniversary of COVID vaccines being distributed in the United States. The 16th was the day that you and several other uh, healthcare providers were able to get your vaccinations. I remember that press conference very well. I was grateful that uh, as a healthcare professional, I had the opportunity to get vaccinated in the first batch. And as patients were talking to me about the vaccine and what it you know, what it meant and if it was safe or not. And I said, well, look, you know, there will be hundreds of thousands of us nationwide who will be receiving the vaccine um, gratefully in healthcare. So by the time there's enough vaccine to roll out to the general population, then uh, it, we will have plenty of experience with in the healthcare world. And that was very true. And over you know, and more than 98% of physicians nationwide took the vaccine and did so safely. Um, and, you know, and after that, you know, after having, you know, significant level of immunity, you know, then the, the risk for myself drastically dropped. And then uh, as the vaccine production increased through Operation Warp Speed, you know, we were able to roll it out you know, to the general population and stages based on risk until there was widespread availability. I wanted to get your thoughts just reflecting back two years later on where we stand with the COVID vaccines and what it meant for the medical field as a whole at that time. The difference is 
in 2020, the mortality rate was sky high, and today it is not, and that's because of two things. That's because there is widespread population immunity uh, through vaccination uh, and or uh, natural infection, both of which are effective, uh, and the fact that, thankfully, the bug you know, has mutated in ways that make it less deadly than it was in 2020 and 2021. So the the vaccine was exactly what we needed, uh, and it was not one day too soon. In fact, uh, a friend that I love dearly uh, died from COVID two weeks before the vaccine was available uh, for uh, the general population. And I had had my shot, but she had not had hers. She was waiting on it. And she contracted COVID Christmas 2020 and uh, died fairly quickly after that. And it's, you know, a burden to my heart that she did not have the opportunity that, that I had. Yeah, I think that was such an interesting time in history is seeing that a vaccine had finally come out, but it was still, the, the in the moment, it felt like the rollout was so uh, just anxious and waiting for it. What was it like having, at least in the healthcare field, that relief of knowing that you can take care of patients and you also have a vaccine on your side to help protect you and the others around you who are trying to keep people alive? Well, yeah, it was everything. It was the game changer for us. Without that vaccine, uh, we've we've lost over 14,000 Mississippians to COVID, and these are deaths related to COVID. This is not someone who died who was COVID positive who died in a car wreck. These are folks that had they not gotten COVID would have survived whatever they were going through, and hopefully we would have been alive today. Without the vaccine, that number very likely triples. And I mean, there are literally thousands upon thousands of Mississippians who are alive today because the vaccine got them through the scariest years of 2020 and 2021. And I'm one of those. And I'm grateful. And uh, this is a victory of the Trump administration that Operation Warp Speed uh, was not guaranteed to be successful, it, it, but it was. And it was successful in producing a vaccine that was safe and effective and has been proven you know, since that time worldwide to be safe and effective. Uh, and it was done so in a way that got it to us as quickly as possible. Now, looking back, I know we've seen a couple rounds of booster doses for certain uh, populations, especially those with increased uh, health risks wanted to get your just overall reflection on since that time, since the original rollout of the vaccines, what have you seen change? Do you think Mississippi's in a better position to talk about future vaccine options if they become available? Well, just to remind everybody that the the three greatest advancements in health for for all of humanity, uh, number one was clean water, Number two was appropriate sewage, and number three were vaccinations. Vaccinations have saved far more lives than surgical procedures or cancer therapies or antibiotics. And uh, all you have to do is look at the success rate in Mississippi with school-age children vaccinations and that we don't 
have measles anymore. We don't see polio, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis. Uh, we don't see hemophilus influenza much anymore because of the vaccine. We uh, don't see hepatitis in our kids anymore, um, except rarely, and, and which means that they will not die of liver cancer like my brother did. Uh, these are all very you know, real issues and very real lives that are not being lost to preventable uh, illnesses. So vaccinations are, are critically important. And vaccinations are the part of pharmaceuticals that is the most highly regulated, studied, and monitored because it is for prevention. And the vaccines that are on the market are demonstrated clearly to be safe and effective and, uh, and continue to be monitored at the highest level of anything that we do with uh, pharmaceuticals. And so if, if you feel safe, you know, taking your blood pressure medicine or your diabetic medicine every day, you should feel safe taking your vaccination that your physician is, uh, is recommending. Dr. Dan Edney, thank you so much for your time speaking with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up, an online listening session this afternoon will give audiences a deeper understanding of how three ghost towns came to be. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer, too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Several towns across the South have suffered devastation due to major environmental shifts, both natural and man-made. These disasters have erased their once-thriving culture and community. Danny MacArthur is a reporter covering environmental justice with the Gulf States Newsroom. They did a series of feature stories about three towns across Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana that are now referred to as ghost towns. The Gulf States Newsroom is hosting an online listening session today at 1 p.m. where people can ask questions about these towns and others. MacArthur tells our Desiree Frazier they'll also have local advocates on the call to discuss what issues they are facing in these small communities. For me, the goal was, I guess, showing how the environment impacts communities and how it can even impact communities to the point where they don't exist anymore. And also something that was very common throughout the series was that these often weren't like the only towns where something like this happened. Like there were other places where something similar had happened. And so it's also calling attention to the fact that um, these are issues that could still happen today if we don't watch out. They've lost populations. They've lost businesses. They are just hanging on by a thread and every town seems to have a small group of people who are trying to stick it out to keep the town uh, going. Is that accurate? Yes. That was the one thing that was kind of a little bit surprising somewhat, was that even places that hadn't existed for maybe like 60 years, like Eastonville, Alabama, you still had people who were dedicated to keeping that memory alive. 
And I think it just speaks to like how personal place is for people. And so these folks still lived in these towns. Is that correct? They still lived where they could. It depended on if it was completely gone. So like Eastonville, Alabama was like flooded. So that town's gone. But I found that a lot of the people lived basically right near where the lake was. Um, so one of the subjects, he lived maybe less than two miles away from the lake. Um, another woman lived right on the lake, um, Joanne Winnett. These places where they lived, that they tend to be more populated than the places that they're trying to keep alive. Yes, they did tend to be bigger because um, the places that usually disappeared were smaller communities, sometimes rural communities. So basically, this is an issue and correct me if I'm wrong, of environmental social justice? Yes. A lot of it for me was coming down to the environmental justice, like how the environment impacts people. Um, And so I found it very interesting to think about an environmental impact that doesn't just impact like a small group of people, but an entire town or entire community. And what was the racial makeup of these communities? Eastonville, I believe, was pretty white. Reveal Town was a pretty black community, and Claremont Harbor is also pretty white. Were there any young people there at all? There were families who lived there, and so folks got displaced. Um, like some of the people I talked to for Eastonville, because it happened so long ago, were on the younger side, and that was just the memories they've had since then. Are you, in your investigation, finding that more and more there are communities like this, rural areas that are really diminishing, going away, becoming ghost towns. Yes. For example, in Eastonville, it was interesting that there was a, which I kind of go into in the story, was in the same county, there was another instance where um, Alabama Power was going to do a hydropower um, plan that was going to displace, I think, hundreds of families, um, and that was in the Chandler Mountain area. Um, and so those citizens actually pushed back really hard against it, and Alabama Power actually backed off on that project. Oh, and then in Louisiana, um, there are towns like Reveal Town that are still happening like today. Like some recent ones are like Mossville. Is there a possibility of reviving these communities when you took a look at what was happening, how people were moving, trends, and so forth? I think it depended. For something like Eastonville, you pretty much are in a situation where you can only keep the memory alive. And, like, same with Reveal Town. Like, what remains of Reveal Town is really that cemetery that folks are fighting over. But I think Claremont Harbor was the one that was the most interesting from that standpoint because, there are people who live there. There are, There is still an active community there. And so it really is kind of a matter of time and, like, I guess the dedication of the community to see if they could bounce back and rebuild. At this event, you're going to have guests on who are with the Gulf States Newsroom and also folks from these communities Will people be able to ask questions, find out more? Because you said there's information, so much information that you weren't able to share in your reports. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll have, um, like, we'll listen to each story. And in between each, we'll ask a question of, like, the person who was 
presented in the story, but we'll also have a Q&A session at the end. It is Thursday at 1 o'clock. How can people plug into this? Um, yeah, they can um, register online. Um, I believe there should be a link on. You could go to the MPB website under the Gulf States Newsroom tab. We wrote a story specifically about the event that has a link where people can register. And it's a Zoom combo. Will you be continuing looking at communities like the ones you've already reported on? Um, I would certainly be interested in it. Um, I'd be interested if other people know of ghost towns that we maybe should look into. Like for me, when I was looking for ghost towns, sometimes it was a challenge just going off the criteria of it, like truly being a ghost town. Um, But there were other places that were of interest that also were impacted by environmental factors. All right. Well, we appreciate your time in speaking to us again, Danny MacArthur with the Gulf States Newsroom, which is comprised of Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.